Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> At the very end of the book, I give the example of both a Republican and a Democrat who kind of pull biblical language for their support of some political movement. And we've seen this even in just the past few months. Like you can find this with the student loan forgiveness debate, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Like you can find a Bible verse for both sides. And oftentimes when you can, both of those sides are not good interpretations of that passage. If it's too neat or clear of an interpretation, like obviously I can pull one verse and that means this policy is the right one. Even if you can find a verse that says, no, obviously that policy is the wrong one, probably both of those are some lazy exegesis, and we should be thinking more broadly and thoughtfully about what we're doing with scripture. Well, hey there, faithful politics listeners and watchers. If you're joining us on YouTube, thanks so much for being with us here today. This is Josh Bertram, your faithful host, and we have our ever-political host, Will. Will, good to see you again, my friend. Thanks. Good to see you. I actually, I have my glasses on that the doctor says I have to wear, but I rarely ever wear. Um, is it because, is it the blue light glasses? No, they're like actual glasses to like see things. Uh, uh, but I've lived my entire life without wearing them. Um, and now it's it's getting to be a point where I, I need to, I need to wear well, them. Well, thanks for putting them on. I like them. They're good. They're good. You get you should get some faithful politics classes in those colors. But anyway, thank you. Yes, we have on the show today, uh, Caitlin Sheese Scheiss. I am sorry. I should have asked before. Yes. Yeah. Chess. Chess. Like chess. I, I even like put the, I put the phonetic sets uh, spelling in the in the notes, Josh. Because oh, like, did you her, really? Her, oh, Twitter, come on, dude. She, she mentioned <laughs> pronounced I mean, like. like Chess, chess. Yeah. All it's right. a weird Very one. Good. It's a weird one. <laughs> hey, you know what? That's awesome. And I'm the one who's embarrassed because it's recorded for everyone to see and not you. So don't <laughs> worry about it. Um, but yes, Caitlin Chess is a writer, speaker, and theologian. She is the author of The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Is a regular co-host on the Holy Post podcast with Sky Jethani and Phil Vischer, which by the way, I love Phil Vischer. So. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome that you're on a podcast with him. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Christianity Today, Christ and Pop Culture, The Relevant and The Sojourners. Shess uh, is currently a doctoral student in political theology at Duke Divinity School. She lives in Durham, North Carolina. So, Caitlin, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. And we're going to be talking about her new book. That's coming out very new, The Ballot and the Bible. And so the first question I have is, have you ever read The Bible and the Ballot by Tripper <laughs> yes, Longman? Yes, I have. Because <laughs> we had him on the, on the podcast. Yeah. So is that why you couldn't name it The Bible and the Ballot? You had to name it The Ballot and the Bible because there already was one? That's or a good question. Or did you prefer I... The Ballot and the Bible? I really did not. I mean, I had sort of an influence on the naming, but that really was someone else's job uh, to figure wait, out the so, title. <laughs> gotcha. So that's how it works when you get to that yeah, level. They just, yeah. <laughs> they don't let you pick titles. <laughs> no, we're pretty bad at it usually. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's oh. awesome. Well, hey, how do, so, so talk to us a little bit about yourself. Tell us your story a little bit. What got you to Duke University with a PhD, working on a PhD in political theology, writing books about the ballot and the Bible? What mm. tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Well, thank you both for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, so I um grew up in the church. Um, I went to Liberty University for my undergrad. So I was there from 2012 to 2016, which means I kind of started at a period where Liberty was not very involved in the kind of political scene. I didn't have a lot of exposure to the kind of history of white evangelical engagement in politics. But I went in and got a history degree. And so I spent a lot of time learning about that history. And then by the time I was graduating in 2016, that history was in my front yard. There were, you know, national media on campus constantly. There were, you know, presidential candidates. Um, Ted Cruz announced his candidacy in my, like, regular chapel, basically. Um, and so I had a real kind of up-close and personal encounter with the history of my own tradition's engagement with politics. I was at this kind of important place for that history. 
And um, I thought I would go to law school. That had been my trajectory for most of my life. I thought I would be personally involved in politics. And it's a long story, but God really redirected me. And I went to seminary after I graduated instead of going to law school. Um, And I really thought, I'm leaving all that behind me. Like, I had an interest in politics and law, and and that has really nothing to do with God, obviously. And so I'm just going to leave that behind and go and do the pious thing in seminary. And it turns out the 2016 election was still happening my first semester of seminary. And so I had lots of conversations with, you know, fellow students who were going to go into full-time ministry and were asking what this meant for their churches, how to talk about it, what implications what was happening politically had for the spiritual life of the people in their churches. And so at that point, I kind of just thought, I'm interested in this because it's what's happening right now. I want to learn more. I want to study some of the history and the theology. That led to my first book in 2020. Um, But probably about halfway through seminary, I just thought, I think this is the rest of my life. Like, I think I'm going to study this forever. And became very convicted that for me to do the kind of work I wanted to do, I needed more resources. I needed to think um, farther back in history, in Christian history, to think about how the church has responded to these kinds of questions in the past. I needed to think more globally how Christians in other parts of the world had answered these questions. And so that led me to apply to a bunch of PhD programs to try and figure out how I could learn more. And um, I ended up at Duke partially because I could do, as you described, like political theology I'm doing most of my coursework in the Divinity School in theology, but I'm doing about a third, a little more than a third of it in political theory and testing in political theory for my exams. And so it was kind of the perfect place where I thought, you know, most of, you know, political theory history couldn't really be separated from theology. Like there wasn't a strict, you know, delineation between those two worlds. And so I felt like for me to really have a fuller understanding of the resources available, the theological, biblical resources available for Christians to live faithful public lives, I needed to learn some of the political theory as well. And so Duke's program has really helped me, exposed me to a lot of different things than I learned in seminary, read different things than I ever would have read in seminary, but also, you know, really exposed me to people who are doing similar work, who think we need to understand both of these worlds to be to be really faithful. That that's really cool. I'm curious if you can maybe pull back the curtain a little bit because, um, you know, for for those that don't really know much about liberty um, per se, mm-hmm. including myself. I mean, you know, I've I've just heard you know maybe some subtle inferences Scandal. about what, yeah, <laughs> what what life is like, you know. And you we know, listen, my, 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 we interviewed the guy from that did the. Uh... Sorry, God the, forbid. Um, God oh, the forbid. documentary. Yeah, yeah. yeah anyway, yeah, go Billy ahead. Corbin. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's just like, you know, from from what I heard, anyways, you know, it's like the the presidential candidates or whatnot that come there have a captive audience because you all have to be there. Um, yeah. So 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 maybe you can talk to us a little bit about you know what that was like and how that whole thing kind of transpires it and also like what's the general feel i mean Mm. i mean i've never been to a christian college you know i went to one of those like brainwashing liberal colleges um (laughs) in california um so so what what is it like to kind of be at a christian college specifically liberty university yeah yeah um so i had gone to public school my whole life i had never had any exposure to christian to formal christian education until i went to liberty and that was part of my desire was i thought you know, I really want to get some Christian education. I should go to a Christian school. And um, I lived a few hours from Liberty in Virginia. And so that was kind of the obvious place. And Liberty, its um, founder, Jerry Falwell Sr., played a really crucial role in the moral majority, was one of the architects of it, was very involved in political life. Um, He also founded Thomas Road Baptist Church, which is a large church that's kind of, I mean, they're connected, you know, they're on the same grounds as Liberty University. Um, And Liberty is a large evangelical Christian university that, so it both has that history of connection to the moral majority, um, but also to this day, like, has kind of taken um, a more conservative political turn. Like, you know, some people will think about Christian institutions that may have started that way and now have kind of become less distinctly Christian. In some ways, that's true of liberty, too. It's just it might be less distinctly Christian in some ways, but it is more distinctly conservative in its politics. And so being on campus, you know, my first couple of years, there wasn't a lot that felt really strange to me. I mean, I grew up in the kinds of churches that liberty represented, where I did sort of think to be a Christian is to be a Republican. So it's not strange to me that there's kind of references to that kind of thinking. I remember my first year 
the election, there was a lot of talk about how Obama was going to ruin the country. And, you know, there was definitely a political preference among Liberty students uh, for McCain. And so that didn't feel strange to me. And I actually really credit Liberty for helping me think more critically about this stuff, because if I had gone to another Christian school that might have had that same beginning, but didn't go in the same exaggerated direction Liberty ended up going in, I think I might not have seen some of the pitfalls of that way of thinking. Because by the time I was in my third and fourth years, it had moved from kind of the water you're swimming in is sort of a white evangelical conservative context to, you know, Ted Cruz announces his candidacy, and it's kind of expected that we are all on board with this. Um, Trump spoke a couple of times in the years that I was there. And the real dissonance for me was, you know, this was our equivalent of chapel. So we sang three or four worship songs before Ted Cruz gets up and gives a political speech and announces his candidacy. Before Trump gives, you know, he gave a very famous speech early in my time there about how we need to hit back more. You know, Christians really should start, you know, stop turning the other cheek so often. Um, and so for me, it was by the time I finished, it really, it, it exaggerated some of the conflict between the way people were talking politically and the way I was hearing us talk in my theology classes or in Bible study. It felt like we believed there was a different set of rules for political life and personal life. And that's, that dissonance started to feel really strong. Um, I think, uh, you know, probably a slight majority of students at Liberty, at least the times that I was there, um, were kind of on board with the direction things were going. But I also think there was a pretty sizable amount of students that either were, like me, starting to be a little more critical or were just tired of it. <laughs> like, it was a lot, like I said, of like national media on campus. Mm. Um, we A lot of people just wanted to have a college experience where their degree wasn't so tainted in the public eye by whatever the president of the university was doing, which at this point, right. the you know son of Jerry Falwell, Jerry Falwell Jr., was really involved. I mean, he was one of the earliest evangelical supporters of Trump, very public and very publicly denigrating of people who disagreed with him in terms of his support for Trump. And then, as I guess you probably heard from, from your previous guest, like had, you know, some pretty significant moral failures privately that then became public and he was forced out. But it was, I think, a place where I, like I said, I credit that for really forcing me to think about some of these questions because I have friends who went to places that had some of that, but it, it didn't get to the exaggerated level where it forced you to kind of ask, well, isn't there some dissonance here between what we've talked about in one context and this? And, and what do we do with that? And is our particular approach to politics how Christians have always thought? Or are there other ways of applying scripture and thinking theologically about this? I love that. And that's a good segue to kind of talking about, again, your book, the one that's coming out. And I wanted to read just a portion from the introduction because I yeah. thought, obviously, the introduction sets up the book and it sets up, you know, the trajectory of the book. And so it's interesting to me. I'm I'm, I'm going to read it. Just kind of want to get your thoughts on like kind of help people understand what the book is going to do. And then we can mm -hmm. dig into more kind of content from it. But here's, and this is just page one, it says in June 2020, during nationwide protests over the killing of George Floyd, President Donald Trump posed with a Bible outside St. John's Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C. Police used riot control tactics to clear protesters from Lafayette Square to prepare for the photo op. Trump bounced the Bible in his hands for a few moments before holding it up for reporters to photograph. When asked, is that your Bible? President Trump responded, it's a Bible. For many Americans, the scene epitomized the relationship between scripture and politics. The Bible is a prop, a tool for leaders to exploit for their purposes. And of course it goes on. But so I think that's an excellent introduction to like even first paragraph for the book. So good job to you and the editor. I felt like that <laughs> set up the book very well. But um, talk about that. What do you mean the Bible is a prop? How did this How did this book even get inspired? What What's going on there that you want us to know about? Yeah, you know, I was just I just spent this last week with a bunch of other folks who were kind of in the faith and public life space. And a bunch of us were talking like, he really couldn't have given us a better picture, <laughs> like a better example to use of this. Um, because as Elizabeth Brunig, who wrote about this back when it happened, she said, you know, he didn't open it. He didn't read it. He didn't go into the church and listen to someone preach it. He just sort of held it up pretty awkwardly. Um, and 
I think it's a good representation of a truthful thing that like very often, even people who are really faithful Christians can get into the habit of just sort of using the Bible to justify any political position they already hold um, or to kind of evoke a sense of divine authority in something that is sort of a contingent worldly decision. Like what policies we support, we're doing our best, but do we really want to say, thus saith the Lord when it comes to those positions? Uh, We do. We very often do want to do that. And we want to use that authority to give ourselves a kind of authority. Um, And so I thought it was a good way to set up, you know, the difficulty here. But the real heart of the book was to say, there's great misuse in American history and American present. But part of why I wanted to write it was because I saw a lot of people my age who, like, similarly to me, maybe their first or second election was 2016 or 2020, and they've seen great failures from Christians in political life and public life. And they've seen Bible verses abused for all sorts of political things that maybe they just don't actually support, but maybe they were really bad. Like, maybe real evil was justified by Scripture. And so they think it's just not worth using it. Like, let's just get the Bible out of the political world because it can't be, we, we can't be trusted to use it well. And I can't trust other people to use it well. And I really resonate with that kind of impulse. I also think there are incredible examples of scripture being used towards really faithful, liberating acts of, of political work in the world. And I wanted to specifically think about American history to say, what habits have we inherited that are worth keeping what thing what you know what treasures from our past can we really honor and learn from and then what kinds of bad habits have we gotten into that we've inherited by virtue of being american christians um and how can we unlearn them a little bit and and so i really wanted both to say the danger is there like it is very much there and also i don't want us to completely you know, exercise scripture out of our public life, in part because I think we owe each other our whole selves. We really should bring our whole selves to our public life. And also there have been examples of great of great work that has been motivated by scripture. Scripture does still have a lot to say about flourishing human communities. And I want that to be a gift from Christians to our larger communities, not something that causes harm. And so I think we have to recognize both parts of that in order to, to move forward in a healthy way. That's 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 really cool. Um, and I, you, you you said something that, that that made me think about what I would say if, if there's one common thread that um, goes through a lot of our episodes is this idea of Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we we even you know got a chance to talk to the author of the book or the author of the book the the, the, the author of yeah the author of the book I'll, I'll get these words right <laughs> the author of the book called a case for Christian nationalism mm. <laughs> nailed it um, and um, you did nail it dude <laughs> and you know it, it seems like those that adhere to this ideology you know. Um, are are basing it on the predication that you know we were founded as a christian nation um and to 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 myself like i I don't necessarily think we were founded as a christian nation based on just the research reading interviews we've done um but it's hard to kind of make that argument that we're not when you see stuff like you know, the prayer breakfasts that like all presidents go to or, you know, references to God and our money or even like the congressional prayers that they start off each like congressional settings um, um, with. So so I'd love to get your thoughts on 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 that. Like, are we yeah. a Christian nation? Um, so go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, I understand like the the kind of tension there, because on one hand, I think, you know, People have written really great books in the last few years about, you know, actually many of the founding fathers were more deist than Christian. Some of their ideas were pretty contradictory. I mean, again, I don't know that as a Christian I want to call the founding a Christian event considering how much great suffering also happened. You know, the enslavement of people, the genocide of Native people. I I don't want to say that that was, you know, a, a totally Christian event. Um, also, I mean, some of the examples that you gave are good examples, too, of how it's more of a kind of mid-20th century onward effort to say we are a Christian nation. So things like In God We Trust on Our Money is like a Cold War era 
you know, effort to really solidify America is Christian, communist nations are atheist. You know, we want to kind of drum up support for people's whole identities being American and Christian. Um, even the National Prayer Breakfast, a pretty recent phenomenon, and now even kind of a mess <laughs> today. Um, so I think it's it's complicated because on one hand, there have been intentional efforts to describe America that way. And I think it's worth saying that many Americans throughout history have been Christian and have found great value in bringing their faith to bear on their political lives. And we inherit that legacy. Um, And part of the reason I feel so conflicted about it is many of the contemporary examples of what people are calling Christian nationalism are certainly things I want to condemn. People who think that it is a Christian's responsibility to use power and coercion to get their policies passed. You know, the image I think most people come up with is the January 6th, you know, insurrection. And so those kinds of things, Christian nationalist things, I think represent something to be really concerned about. When you look at the history, though, if we if we take too broad a definition of Christian nationalism, I think there's some things we would end up condemning we don't want to condemn. Things like, you know, during the Civil War era, enslaved and free Black people drawing on not just scripture, but scripture and like the legacy of the American Constitution and the legacy of liberty and freedom being central American ideals. If you take their, those words and read them today— if you have too broad a definition of Christian nationalism, you could say, well, that's kind of Christian nationalist. You're blending scripture and American ideals and the language of the Constitution. And yet for people at that time, that was incredibly important. It was liberating and it drew on, it really called America to account for not living up to the ideals that she supposedly was supposed to hold. And so I think in that sense, we could say, yeah, America is a Christian nation in the sense that there have been many Christians trying to make it more faithful as a nation. Um, if we want to say America is a Christian nation, which means that it never has and should not be welcoming to people who are not Christian, that we shouldn't strive for like a really faithful pluralistic society, then I would say we've always been trying and failing to do that, and we should continue to try to do that better. Um, I think a lot of these conversations suffer from, you know, confusion of terms, and I really do want to both affirm that that history is more complicated than some people today want to make it out to be. And that in our effort to say, actually, the history is a lot more complicated than just it's a Christian nation, I don't want us to forget that there have been really significant moments where the nation was shaped by Christians who said, as a Christian and an American, this is the kind of country I want us to be in. And I want, you know, really scriptural ideas to shape the kind of country that we become. Uh, That's amazing. I am, you know, this, uh, when I was reading this book, um, I was struck by the ways in which both sides use scripture throughout, you know, our history in America. I was struck by how they would use scripture to, um, you know, basically people were saying, you're not being very, you know, Christian um, for any number of their mm-hmm. political things, and they would condemn the other person. And they would both use scripture, and they would choose selectively which scriptures they would use. Kind of help us understand what is it, what's the Bible, what's the role of the Bible been like, really, in American history? Kind of trace it for us a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. how has it been used? What kind of power does it have? And, um, and, and yeah, just kind of trace that for us, help us understand what's going on there as you write about it in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this kind of goes to what I was just saying in the sense that there have been Christian ideas really shaping American politics throughout all of our history for good and for ill. Um, but you know, the language of the Bible from really early in American history, pre what we would call American history, but just like the history of the colonies biblical language was so much more familiar to people. Like if there's anything I learned tracing the history from very early until now, it's it's that we both kind of, we use it and misuse it pretty similar amounts throughout history. Um, we use it in terms of our political goals pretty much as often now as we did then. It's just that we used to use much more obscure references <laughs> because we used to know scripture a lot better. So someone could get away with- right. For example, in the Revolutionary War, claiming the curse of Miraz against people who were not supporting the revolution. That was fascinating. Which is from this line in Deborah's song that, like, no one would know today if in a political speech. You said, oh, 
the curse of Mara's against you. Like no one would know what that meant, but they could do that then because people were familiar, more familiar with some of the more obscure parts of scripture. So it's always been, especially in a kind of distinctly American way, a common language for us. I mean, the the first and second great awakenings, especially the first, gave people this sense that they should read scripture for themselves, that their relationship with Jesus should be personal. Um, and it kind of unsettled some traditional religious authority structures. And so, you know, a pastor might be afraid to say something a little bit controversial in a sermon because people in the pews had their Bibles in front of them and would flip to that page and kind of hold them to account. And And there's good things and bad things about that, you know, some good things being yeah, they can hold the pastor to account if they're preaching something that doesn't stand up against scripture. Um, the negative thing being that everyone supposedly can interpret it completely for themselves as individuals. And we've struggled with that history throughout American history of, you know, as you've said, we can we, we can find scripture to support all sorts of political positions, even contradictory ones. Um, so that language has always been really important. Today, I think it's often more general terms. We're more comfortable using kind of generic faith language um, or talking about like the sovereign or the divine or, but we don't want to be too specific very often. Um, Though sometimes today, in the case of Christian nationalism being one example, sometimes we very much are. Um, And I think, as you've said, one of the things that's difficult is that some people will look at that history and go, well, you know, scripture really shouldn't be used in our political context because it can be used to support anything. I mean, it was used by abolitionists and it was used by pro-slavery folks. It was used, you know, for and against the Vietnam War. It was, you know, so what are we supposed to do? I think that we can find really good examples of of how we can make judgments in the past that help us make better judgments in the future. When people go back and look at some of the the slavery debates, for example— not only do I think we can make judgments based on, well, slavery is wrong. So the people who were saying that were right. We also can look back at their exegesis and go, well, no, this part, like this sermon was clearly motivated by the economic desire you had to justify slavery. We can see the poor exegesis behind that. We can see the really powerful reading of scripture, especially not just by white abolitionists, but by both enslaved and free Black Americans in that period. We can learn from that exegesis and say, actually, just on the basis of that, that's a better judgment about what scripture is doing and how we should respond to it. Um, And so I think another part of the book that was important to me was to say, it is true. You can find a Bible verse for anything that you want. That doesn't mean that all of those uses are equally valid or that we can't make good judgments about what is good interpretation and what isn't. And we can do it for both parties. <laughs> like the very end of the book, I give the example of both a Republican and a Democrat who kind of pull biblical language for their support of some political movement. And we've seen this even in just the past few months. Like you can find this with the student loan forgiveness debate, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Like you can find a Bible verse for both sides. And oftentimes when you can, both of those sides are not good interpretations of that passage. <laughs> if it's too neat or clear of an interpretation, like Obviously, I can pull one verse, and that means this policy is the right one. Even if you can find a verse that says, no, obviously, that policy is the wrong one, probably both of those are some lazy exegesis, and we should be thinking more broadly and thoughtfully about what we're doing with Scripture. You know, that that, that makes me think of, like, the role of a pastor um, in a church, um, because, you know, the, the the way I look at it is, if you had two islands— and a person on each island was given a Bible, and they were told to read it and and apply it to their circumstance, their lives, whatever. Like you may come up with two different interpretations of how the Bible applies, because I think like you know people read it and they 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 use their own life and their circumstances and their you know whatever position and and draw out of it what they feel they need to draw out of it. And case in point, like we had a um, we had a, a trans bishop um, on the show um, last year, I think it was, and um, and they provided biblical scriptures that help support um, their their love, you know, their um, their identity, but also we've had people on um, on the other side that you know basically use the Bible to say, you know, it's just a, a moral failing, a sin or or what have you. So, so how, how important, I guess, is, is the role of a pastor in helping us understand or work through, you know, how the Bible applies to us, um, both, you know, socially and, and politically. 
stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Yeah, no, I think that's huge. Um, and I think part of the part of it too, I mean, my real heart for the book was not just that people would read this and kind of go like, oh, look at these bad examples, or oh, I'm going to be right in my, but realizing that the community that they're in, both their pastor, but also the other people in their church community are really important for checking their own biases. It was, it was really important for me to say in the book, you know, we all we all come with things to scripture. There's no one who's coming with a blank slate. And if that's the goal, it's both impossible and you're probably going to delude yourself into thinking you're the one person who's totally neutral on all these questions. We should evaluate. What do we bring? What is good? Like what is the kind of good theology that you've learned that should be shaping how you read scripture? What are the experiences in your life that provide insight that are necessary? What's the bad stuff? Um, an example being I talk in the book about the curse of ham interpretation. People were bringing a whole idea about the world and race and what it meant to the text. That was a bad thing to bring. Um, then there's neutral things, like things that really, you know, don't shape your interpretation in positive or negative ways, but they're part of who you are and your story. Um, and we bring all of that. And so I think part of the pastoral role is helping people determine what to keep, what to get rid of, um, being aware of the biases they have. And that's why I say it's both a, a pastoral role, the pastoral part really being the person who can know people deeply enough to help them see that and be gentle and kind and pointing it out so that it doesn't kind of prevent them from seeing it. But that's also why you need the whole community. There are going to be people in your community that see things that you don't see, which is one of the reasons it's really important to foster a diverse community, to say, like, we are going to miss things if we have people missing in our congregation that are part of our community but just don't show up here. Um, I mean, I remember in seminary learning about – there was a professor who was talking to us about um, the story with Rahab. Which is kind of, you know, people will will talk so negatively about Rahab. Rahab's a prostitute. You know, this is just a story of God using the lowest of the low prostitute. Um, and one of my professors in seminary told a story about a group of Bible scholars who were all men and had never had any women part of their group. And a few women joined their group and pointed out, well, why were the Israelite spies going to a prostitute's house first of all? In the beginning, like, why was that the first place they went? Like, they weren't unaware of where they were going. Like, why is it that Rahab is the bad guy in this story when it's these men that went there first? Um, and so that was something they had never thought about. And there's actually a bunch of interesting kind of innuendos in that story in the Hebrew that the scholars in that group that were great scholars that knew Hebrew well had never really thought about before because they weren't thinking about the kind of gender dynamic that was at play there. And there's all sorts of examples of that throughout scripture, but that's the kind of thing where if it is just the way I kind of grew up thinking, it's you alone with your Bible for your quiet time every day, we will make great mistakes. We will really, and, and that's part of why I wanted to show the history, was to say both individually and then in communities that aren't able to see their own biases and failures, we will continually make mistakes. And it's not just academic stuff. It's not just, oh, I messed up this verse. It's how are we treating people in our communities? How faithful are we being with the resources we have? What kind of community do we create for the most vulnerable people in it? Those questions are in part determined by how faithful we are in our interpretation, which makes it a really important question for us to work together in our communities on. Yeah. And, and you know, when I read the Bible and the things I've taken away from sermons and, and what have you is, for me, it's like, Grace, love, you know, all the sort of like hippie stuff um, and and basically all the things that, you know, make make conservatives and Republicans hate folks like me because they think that I'm reading the Bible mm -hmm. wrong because they, you know, I don't know how many times I've heard you can't be Democrat, you know, and a Christian um, because of X, Y, Z. And um, 
And I'm I'm curious, just this is more of a personal question, but like what's what's the big takeaway for you um as far as the purpose of the Bible? Yeah, I mean I don't know that I can give, you know, a single <laughs> statement about it, but I do think, you know, part of what I think often the communities I have been a part of have missed about scripture is that it says something not just to our individual spiritual lives, but to our communal and social lives. And so one of the, I, you know, the way that I often teach in churches when I'm kind of giving a general um you know, biblical political theology is to start with Genesis and end with Revelation and say the beginning of the story is humanity created good in good creation, given resources and told to create a flourishing community. They're, you know, to rule and to reign is not just subjugation. In fact, in a world prior to sin, it's not subjugation at all. It's actually, you know, empowering others using the good gifts of God's creation to build something good and flourishing. And that commission is never taken away. So in the end in Revelation, we don't have a picture of just people sitting on clouds singing songs or playing harps. We have a picture of the New Jerusalem, a city, a a picture of human creativity that has really, you know, continued on and has created this, you know, beautiful example of God dwelling with God's people and that commission never going away, the commission remaining for them to create something good with the gifts he has given. And so for me, when I'm thinking about Scripture in the church and in public, that larger story then shapes how much how I see many other things in Scripture. In the Old Testament law, when it's talking about caring for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner, that exists under this larger story of using the good gifts of God's creation to create a flourishing community. But it recognizes that in the middle of the story, when sin is involved— We're going to have to have reparative measures to make sure that we aren't harming people, even when we're not intending to. We'll get into patterns and systems and generations that do cause harm. And so let's figure out how to have, it might might not be exactly the same as the structure that's given in the Old Testament, but that tells us that God's heart is for us to create systems that can kind of counteract those generational impulses. Um, And so that's where I see, you know, scripture for both Christians in the church and then as we live lives in public. That larger story of you have been given a commission to seek a flourishing community with the resources God has given you should inform your interpretations of other things. It's really hard to read the rest of scripture as this inner spiritual thing when you recognize that larger story that everything else is kind of couched within. So one of the things that was like amazing in the book was so uh, striking to me when I was reading about um, Martin uh, Luther King Jr. and um, how he uh, was trying, he had he had been educated in some of the liberal theology, but he didn't totally buy into it. But he but he took some of it um, definitely and was and was highly um, influenced. And but it was amazing to me looking at him. Um, making these arguments against, right, um, against segregation, right, mm-hmm. and 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 seeing in that time the arguments for segregation and the arguments against segregation, and then like how most people, like most pastors, like they would get complaints because they were just kind of they were quiet. They didn't want to push. They didn't want to, you know, um, rock the apple cart, so to speak, or, or mm-hmm. they, they didn't, they didn't want to make, stir things up and, and they didn't want to get too political and and they're trying to figure out how to, how to, um, you know, help their, help their congregations learn how to do the right things and, and how to be the right kind of Christians. But they missed this huge thing, or at least we would think they missed it. And then I thought about, yeah. Like today, what's the equivalent today? Because like we're looking back on this and we're like, we can't believe these white pastors or we can't believe these pastors that would support segregation. And it's like, but I'm sure they felt like they were doing exactly what they should be doing. And and that's the hard part about history, right? Because we make judgments on people that lived in very mm-hmm. different times yeah. and had de- very different assumptions. So I guess, like, kind of help us unpack a little bit the use of scripture surrounding Martin Luther King Jr., like how much that that helped the civil rights movement, how much it empowered it, 
and then how much even scripture the Bible was used to to stamp it down and to and you know to control it. Yeah, no, I love so one of my favorite things about um, the book in terms of like kind of fun ways that you get to look in history and learn things that you didn't expect. So I knew I wanted to do a chapter on the social gospel, um, you know, early or kind of late 19th to early 20th century movement, especially among kind of liberal main, what we would now consider mainline churches in the U.S. And I wanted to say like, look, they saw something really important that scripture demanded of you to have social implications of the gospel in your communities and to seek those things. And I expected to kind of go back and look at that history and just think like, wow, look at them. Like they saw something in scripture my churches today have failed at, like great for them. What I found was some of that is absolutely true. There were pastors who really said, actually, this has implications economically and politically and we need, and there's some wonderful theology written from that period. It was also incredibly paternalistic (laughs) and very white. And so I, one of the things I found so interesting was that Martin Luther King Jr. had some criticisms of the social gospel era folks, including people like Walter Rauschenbusch, who was one of the kind of theological architects of the movement. And one of his criticisms was that they didn't take sin seriously enough, that they actually didn't recognize like the real fallenness of humans. And that's something that I think is incredibly relevant today on both sides of the political spectrum to say, on one hand, we can't lose sight of the fact that the gospel has social and political implications, and it is worth our time. It's actually an act of faithfulness for us to seek out more justice, more flourishing communities. And yet, if we do that in the same mindset of many of the social gospelers, we will be pretty paternalistic to people who are more impoverished or marginalized than we are. And we might not even realize how our own biases and sin will impact what we're doing. Um, A lot of people will turn to this era and look at um, Niebuhr, kind of an important theologian in that era, and say, look, he saw that we needed to really think about sin in our political life. And he's one of the theologians will often say, you know, there was so much energy towards progressive movements at this time. We thought we could fix the world. And then two world wars happened and the Holocaust and nuclear weapons. And we realized maybe humans aren't so innately good as we thought they were. Maybe they're really broken. And that story is true. But I think the person we kind of miss in that story is actually MLK, who with Niebuhr, who was really influenced by Niebuhr, said, yeah, the social gospel folks got wrong the sinfulness of humans. And actually, it didn't take people in my community two world wars and a nuclear bomb to know that. Like, that's been our experience. So why don't you listen to us a little bit instead of just kind of acting like you newly discovered this? And I love that because people today have this, you know, kind of assumption about the social gospel movement that they didn't take sin seriously enough, which means the liberals didn't take sin seriously enough. Conservatives take it very seriously. MLK is such an interesting example because... It's not like he's the white conservative guy saying they didn't take sin seriously enough. You know, maybe that's not the representative of this that we should have. It should be someone like him. Um, And many of the other, I mean, he was obviously a significant figure, but many other both theologians and activists in that period that fall within the kind of civil rights movement who were saying very similar things. And it's interesting to me that many kind of conservative folks today, especially white evangelical folks, have a lot of disdain for the social gospel. And they'll say, like, they substituted social action for theological certainty. Like they they didn't do things well. We were the ones who kind of kept going the real orthodox tradition. And yet many of those folks today seem to have a lot of confidence that if Christians were in charge, we would just do everything right <laughs> and we would fix things. And yet the lesson we were supposed to get from the social gospelers wasn't that there aren't social implications from the gospel. It's that there are, but we have to take seriously the sinfulness, not only outside of ourselves, but within ourselves. And how we can kind of learn that lesson today, I think, is both by learning from, you know, the critics of the social gospel at the time, but especially learning from the critics at the time who didn't say that the answer was just withdrawing from political life. But those who said, especially those in the civil rights movement, who said, Nope, the sinfulness of humans and the way that that impacts societies means that the work we are doing is going to be very difficult and we will suffer for it. But if we believe in the resurrection of the dead, if we actually believe in the end of the story where God wipes every tear from every eye and makes all things new, we can work really hard for justice in the world without taking it by force the way people have in the past, without kind of making shortcuts that shouldn't be taken or sacrifices that shouldn't be sacrificed, compromises that shouldn't be made. We can actually work really hard and know that in the end, God will vindicate the real works of justice we tried to create, even if we don't see results in the world now. 
Yeah, um, I, I have a question. H- have you ever seen a uh, um, The Handmaid's Tale? Hmm. <laughs> uh, are you are you through all the way season five? I'm not. No, I've seen some of the beginning, but not very much. Okay, I I, I swear I I feel like this is a question I've asked like all of our guests because <laughs> uh, it's it's so applicable, and I keep trying to like convince Josh he needs to watch it, but it's it's di- it's difficult to watch <laughs> because especially if you're a believer, you're like wow, like I could see all this happening if. Mm-hmm. If, you know, Christians controlled everything, you know, um, and, um, you know, my fear just kind of watching it is like, okay, this is this this could happen. Like people can take scripture, warp it in such a way um, to oppress people um, in ways that I don't believe are consistent with, um, you know, the biblical teachings. And, you know, like I think we, we we've seen this. In a lot of different situations, you know, when, when we had, um, we, we talked with Anthea Butler some time ago, she wrote a really great book, White Evangelical Racism. Yeah, I think the, mm-hmm. the title's called. And, um, you know, in her book, she, she talks about the Negro or the slave Bible that was written uh, that omitted certain passages. So if you are a slave that could read, um, you would potentially be given this Bible that just omits all those, you know, passages. And I, and I really, you know, think that that's kind of what, what the sort of world's become, like the United States specifically, in the sense that most of the Bible people hear about um, that aren't believers um, get these little snippets, and then those snippets turn non-believers into even stronger atheists or 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 anti-Christian because they they look at you know somebody on Fox News spouting biblical verses, and then they're like. Yeah, I want like zero to do with any of that. Um, so, so like, how do you how do you change that? I mean, especially like in this sort of political environment. I mean, how do you, how do you win back the gospel for Jesus <laughs> in a way that that you know communicates love, communicates grace, um, communicates acceptance? Um, because for me as a believer, like I, I came to the faith really really late in life, and you know, I spent more of my years as an atheist than a Christian. So I intentionally stayed away from crazy Christians because all I saw were crazy Christians. I had like no, I actually had, had a few friends that were Christians that were pretty cool. But, um, you know, today it's like, I don't blame anybody that looks at us, you know, and, and thinks that, yeah, I want to be a part of that, you know, like nobody thinks that way anymore. So, so how do you, how do you change that? Yeah, I joked with someone yesterday that like I fully expect this book to just like change all of the all of the, you know, old ingrained dynamics of American evangelicalism. Um, you know, I do yes. think <laughs> I do think there's kind of two parts to this. One is how it how scripture is rehabilitated in terms of like good public use. And for me, that really has to do with a switch from I want to coerce people into believing this. And I want to offer this as a gift. And that's a posture shift that I think needs to happen for a lot of Christians to say, you know, I might have been able in the past to say this more forcefully. You know, scripture says this, this is important. We should go along with it. And that could have held some water. Now, the assumption should probably be that if I quote scripture, people are suspicious. And so I should both take the time to do a lot more explanation of where I'm coming from and why this does really mean what I think it means. Um, And maybe quote it less, you know, maybe be more cautious in the context that we're in. So I think with the scripture part, I mean, really what I have tried to do in my own life is try to memorize more scripture because I want the language of scripture to shape my public life, but I don't want it to shape my public life in a way that says, thus saith the Lord, you can't argue with me, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, but that it does just shape my life, not just when I'm trying to convince you that my political position is correct, but when I'm just thinking about other more personal things and communal things and family things, like I do want it to shape my whole life. And I do think people should be rightly suspicious if the only time I invoke it is when I'm trying to convince you of my political position. I probably don't hold it in very high regard, actually, if I only use it for those circumstances. Um, and then when it comes to our our public life, you know, I think there are a lot of people in churches that they think are doing really faithful things and they're frustrated by the perception at the national level. And they're like, my little church is like 
feeding the hungry and caring for the poor. And why do I have to carry the baggage of this like politician with a billion dollars? You know, that doesn't make sense. Um, And I get that. That feels really unfair. And at the same time, what an opportunity to really both be sanctified, to, to, to labor under circumstances that are not the ones you would choose, but also to keep your focus on what really matters. Like if it feels impossible to change the national conversation about Christianity and especially Christianity and politics, okay, great. Maybe your aspirations were never supposed to be national change. <laughs> Maybe your aspirations were supposed to be, there's this one policy in my neighborhood that impacts the, you know, the impoverished and the marginalized in really negative ways. Maybe my like life mission <laughs> is to change this one policy. And in God's economy, that's more significant than sacrificing things that shouldn't be sacrificed. So I have some national position and can supposedly change the whole world. Um, and so I hope that this kind of the conditions we're under can really force us to say, maybe there are smaller, slower, quieter ways of being faithful. And actually, they might tempt us less to sell our soul in the process. Um, and we might not get to see the like massive scale changes that we think are so important. But actually, maybe that's not ever really what God intended for us to try to do. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've always, I don't know how many times I've been asked as a, as a Christian, you know, like what, what my views are about X, Y, or Z, you know, and, and I'll just use like gay marriage, for instance. You know, people say, oh, you're a liberal, but you're a Christian. You know, what, what does your Bible say about that? And, I, and my, my normal go-to response is, I have no idea. Um, and it's just not really a matter. It's not a focus for me because it's not important. Like for me, I would rather the Bible instruct me on how to love the people that hate that group <laughs> because, mm. um, you know, every time we have a, a, a Christian on the show who who's from that community, I'm just like, you know, hats off to you because, you know, like we are not a very accepting group and the fact that you chose to, you know, join our group, um, given the current environment is I think admirable. Um, but, but, but I, I want to switch gears a little bit to, to something that you mentioned in your book about, you know, giving to Caesar what Caesar's, um, and I, I'd love to kind of get your take on, on what that actually means. Um, I, I've, I've had some conversations with friends recently where, where they're like, you know, give on give to Caesar what Caesar's means we should pay our taxes. And then another literal interpretation was we don't have to pay our taxes because Caesar's not around. <laughs> um, so so maybe you can kind of settle, settle it once and for all. <laughs> I don't know about settling it once and for all, but um, I'll give you I'll give you my take, which is, um, you know, on one hand, I think we have to be cautious about kind of constructing a whole political theology based on one very strange thing Jesus said, like, Jesus said a lot of weird things <laughs> and tried to kind of catch people in weird circumstances. So anytime I think we build an entire thing off of something that we're not really sure exactly <laughs> what it meant is a, is a problem. Um, I do think, I mean, it's important to read that, you know, one short thing Jesus said in the context, not just of his whole life and of the whole gospels, but of the whole council of scripture. And when we read it in that context, I think it both tells us that People who interpret in that passage and say, well, there's sort of different obligations that you have to Caesar and that you have to God. I don't think they're totally wrong. I think in scripture we find examples of times where you owe something different, you so you owe something more to God <laughs> than you owe to government authorities. Even in Romans 13, when it talks about obeying the government, the language in Greek that's used for other kind of government officials is lower kind of intensity then is reserved for God. You obey God in a kind of um, universal way, in a unilateral way, whereas you honor or respect or you might submit to, but that's not total unquestioning obedience. So there's a, a there's kind of a lowering of government authorities throughout all of scripture. They are both to be honored and respected, but by virtue of being honored and respected because God told you to, it's saying that there is an authority that is higher than them. Even when it talks in the New Testament about praying for authorities, the act of praying says, I am appealing to a higher authority on your behalf. You are not actually ultimate, even if you pretend that you are. Um, so I think that's part of what's going on. A lot of biblical scholars will also say, you know, part of what I think Jesus is doing in a sort of subtle way is by saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, this coin that's been given to him that has an image of Caesar on it, but to God's what is God's, then provokes the question, well, what is God's? 
And I think the story of all of scripture says everything, like absolutely everything is God's. And so you owe more to God, but you also, that means that that kind of obligation to Caesar doesn't go away. Like just because all of these authorities are lower doesn't mean they cease to exist or to matter. There are a lot of biblical scholars that will say, especially of Romans 13, that there might be kind of a concern Paul has to say, hey, 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 yes, we know Jesus is coming back. That's very important. That doesn't mean you suddenly have no responsibilities. <laughs> that doesn't mean you just live a life that just, you know, doesn't engage with the government or your family or your larger community. You still do that. You still do public acts of service, which are described in Romans 13. Um, and I think Jesus is saying a similar thing, which is to say you have real obligations. He doesn't say don't give to Caesar what is Caesar's because you gave to God what is God's. He says both. One of them is prioritized over the other, but the other, you know, priority doesn't completely disappear. And it's also, I mean, I think a lot of people in recent years have seen in the Gospels this kind of anti-imperialist critique from Jesus and later from Paul, and I think that's true. But it's also true that it's not done in the way that we might think of a critique now. It doesn't completely disregard any sense of legitimate authority. It also doesn't say we just kind of overthrow the government. It says that we find ways to be faithful to God, sometimes through our obedience um, in a limited sense to government authorities. But there will come times, and Scripture has often has often given support for people resisting the government because of its gr- the great unfaithfulness that it would require of people under it. So I think in both of those passages, in Romans 13 and then also in this instruction that Jesus gives, I think we do see kind of beginnings of, you know, p- portions of a larger biblical account of legitimate authority that is still subordinate to God. What we don't find, and what I think people have been tempted to find, is sort of a clear-cut, obvious political diagram (laughs) that tells you, like, what is required of you and what isn't. And when you put that in relationship to these other passages, I mean, I think your friend that says pay your taxes is probably more right than the friend that says don't pay the taxes, because that's kind of a repeated requirement. But it's not given in in a context of all of Scripture that says give the taxes because you are completely subject to the government. It says give taxes, especially in the case of Romans 13, because you exist in a larger community and you have responsibilities to it. And so you should fulfill them. But like it says in Acts 5, ultimately, there could come a time when you have to say, we will obey God rather than human beings. There could be a requirement made of you that you cannot in good conscience fulfill as a Christian. And that possibility is not just a new thing Christians have dealt with. That's described in scripture, that there could be moments where those two obligations conflict so much that you can't you can't fulfill the one to earthly authorities. This is so good. You know, I, uh, I want, I want to draw out just a comparison and we're, we're winding up to the end, but I want to draw out just a comparison. So one of the things that you do, right, is show the differences in how people interpret scripture on either side of very controversial debates, um, and controversial political issues and moments in our history. So, that's that I'm, that's amazing. I want to take four presidents, okay? <laughs> Bush. No, let, let me t- yeah, Bush, uh Obama, Trump and Biden. Now, talk to us a little bit about how these candidates, two Republicans, two Democrats, how they use scripture contemporarily or the lack of, and just kind of talk to us, because I guess one thing I hear a lot is that Trump is an evangelical, which I don't believe. Um, I, I don't even know if he opened a Bible ever in his life, um, just from the way that he's talked about it. But at the same time, right, it's used, in, and he has some awareness of it, but that doesn't mean that the other presidents don't use the Bible just as much. Um, they're just not as not as obvious about it. Um, what do you think? Kind of compare, help us understand. I know in the book you actually literally do write George Bush and Obama, so you can focus on those if you want, but kind of help us understand our current cultural context when it comes to the Bible, like using those four presidents. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, like you said, there is a chapter that is on Bush and Obama, partially because it's the two recent presidents that each have the same amount of time to look at, eight years. 
Um, and both of them gave eight prayer breakfast speeches. So it's like their most religious speech of the year, their opportunity to address religious people. And what I found, it's probably the most interesting thing I think I found in the whole book, is that George W. Bush thought of as like the most Christian president. If you go looking, you will find at the time so many just like gushing descriptions of him. He was so Christian. Um, Reagan, probably like another big figure seen as really Christian, but during the Bush years talked about by Christians, especially evangelicals, as so Christian. Never uses the name of Jesus Christ in a single prayer breakfast speech over his eight years. Obama, <laughs> Obama, who spent That's a funny. good Yes, Obama, who spent all eight years of his presidency needing members of his staff to convince people that he was not Muslim, mentions the name of Jesus in all but one of his prayer breakfast speeches. And one of them, he talks about the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. He gets very graphic, you know. Um, But he's a Muslim. He doesn't understand the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. (laughs) So it's just – it's a good description, I think. I think Bush – Really, um, and, and it later became very widely known that his faith was both very public in the sense that he talked about being a Christian, but very private in the sense that he didn't really talk about what that practically meant. And there was a lot of talk about there being Bible studies in the White House, but no one said who was doing it or like who his spiritual advisors were. He didn't go to a church in D.C. that was public information, though many presidents did, including the one before and after him. So his faith was very private, which is a very evangelical thing to say that like, oh, we have a private relationship with Jesus. He drew very much on, I'm one of you. I'm your people. I'm an evangelical, so I I belong to you. Um, And he also drew very much on kind of civic religion. In many of his speeches, he used very generic terms to talk about God. So I think he's kind of the last president who really could pretend oh, we all kind of believe the same thing. And I'm going to be vague about it because I don't want to exclude anyone who's like a different kind of Christian than me. But we're all basically, you know, American equals Christian. We're all kind of the same. Whereas Obama both came to faith in a community organizing context where there's a lot of interest in, you know, we have different interests and we should be honest about the differences we have. Um, He also came to faith in a black church context that had a very different relationship to political power than the white evangelical churches um, that Bush came from, you know, the Methodist church in Texas. Um, And so that's a significant difference. And I think Obama also exemplified what I think, I mean, I have my own criticisms of some of the things he said in those speeches. I don't think any president has been perfect, but I do think his approach to faith was was one that I wish that we would kind of return to and learn from, because in many of his pro-breakfast speeches, he mentioned more, you know, a more a greater diversity of religious backgrounds than most presidents did, but not in a sense of like, oh, we all believe the same thing, or, you know, we should all just make it safe for everyone to be there. That, that second part was part of it. He cared a lot about the country being a safe and, and healthy place for lots of different people. But it really came from a place of him saying, look, I'm, I can be specific about my faith. I can say scripture actually requires us to do these kinds of things because I'm asking you to do the same with me. I want you, my Muslim, my Jewish, my Sikh neighbor, to say that your faith informs your political life. And we will have differences. We'll have places of overlap. We'll have to make compromises. But I think we have a better, healthier public life when I bring my whole self, including my Christian faith, and then you bring yours as well. And and so that, I think, really distinguishes the two of them. And, and Obama really cared about biblical language, religious language. He gave a speech early in his political career in Chicago where he talked about, we actually need to reclaim some moral language. Like, Scripture has great language. He even said kind of what I say in the book, like, we don't have the civil rights movement if we don't have biblical language in our public life, so we should reclaim it. Um to just briefly say something about Trump and Biden, I mean, Biden, I think, has some similar tendencies to Obama, which makes sense as, you know, a two-term vice president. He also kind of uses scripture in sort of a, this is a shared moral language kind of way, um, has the distinction of being Catholic. And so there's kind of a different history with American uh, Catholicism there. Um, and to your point about Trump, I mean, again, I think he actually, the, the one similarity he has with Bush is that he did want to say, I'm on your team. I'm one of your people. But that really yes. was the extent, I think, of his, I mean, there's lots of examples people can find online of like him being asked what his favorite Bible verse is and not really having an answer. Or do you like the Old or New Testament better? Which I think is a terrible question, but he didn't really have an answer for that either. And um, and so I think it would just behoove to kind of make this less abstract and, and give something practical. When we're looking at politicians to say who is being honest about their faith background and how it informs what they're doing, 
And does it do, do the policies that they're supporting and the statements they're making actually align with biblical Christianity or not? Instead of asking what we often ask, which is, do they sound like me? Or are they part of my Ooh, team? Or do they quote preach. scripture in a way that makes me feel like my team is winning? You know, I feel good if the Bible's in public. No, I feel good if the Bible is used in public correctly, not just that it scored points for my team just because Ooh, it was referenced. That'll preach. Um, so Even I think more. those are some better questions for us to think about with politicians. That makes that makes so much sense. That makes so much <laughs> sense. Um, so last question. We have a very broad audience that listens to our podcast, international audience, Christians, atheists, liberals, Democrats, gays, straights. Um, what else? What else, Will? Um, any, more, any more bifurcations we can come up with? Um, human, non-human, you know. Human, you know. non-human, yes. Um, that's good. So, but we, it's diverse is the point. The question I have is like addressing this audience. What do you hope, you know, obviously we want everyone to get the book and we'll give a chance to again, give a shout out and how people can follow you and everything. But what do you want them, even if they don't read the book, what do you want them to hear? What's the message of the Mm. book you want them to hear? Mm. That's a great question. Um, I think I would say, <laughs> I have a friend who who wrote an endorsement for the book, uh, Sharon Hottie Miller, and then she did that thing where she sent like, you know, I sent the official endorsement to the publisher, but here's like the kind of, you know, real friend friend endorsement. <laughs> <That's nice. laughs> and her real friend friend endorsement was, you know, Caitlin, this is really a book about how to read the Bible. Like, it's kind of about politics. It's really about how to read the mm. Bible. And I loved that because I do kind of want to sneak attack people and be like, yes, it's about politics, but also it's about reading the Bible. Yeah. And and I would say that that's true for anyone, regardless of the faith background they come from or find themselves in or the questions they're asking. Um, there is a really beautiful and true story in scripture, and I want us to read it more. Um, there's a yes. really um, wonderful book that's, you know, similar themes to mine by Stanley Hauerwas, and he gives a very typical controversial claim in the beginning where he says, we need to take the Bible out of the hands of American Christians. Like, they've they've abused it so much, we need to take it out of their hands. And I think my answer to him would be, no, I want the Bible in the hands of American, Christian or not. I just want them to open it. (laughs) I want them to read it. I don't want it to be wielded as a weapon or pulled up as a prop. I want us to read it and to be open to what God might show us, Um, even if we're not sure what that means, like just going to it and reading it. um, It has produced um, both spiritual and political effects that are positive and liberating and faithful throughout history. And we should give it the opportunity to shape us in those ways as well. Oh, man, that's so good. And it, it, it's such an amazing point because all of us are, if we're Americans, we've been influenced by the Bible, yeah. whether we think it or not, whether yes. we've read it or not. It influences us every day because of the country that we're in yeah. and how much it's been shaped profoundly by the Bible and a Christian uh, Christian worldview. But man, Caitlin, it's been such a great honor to have you on. It's been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, Thank you. The book is absolutely The Ballot and the Bible. Where can people pick it up and how can they follow you and keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, you should be able to get it wherever you get books. Um, You can get it from the Baker Book House. You can get it from Amazon. You can get it anywhere that you get books online. Um, And you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Caitlin Chess. It might be hard to spell, but you'll get it eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I was going to say, I I forgot to mention, uh, I got a text from um josh last night it and, and he wrote that the bible privileges those without privilege and honors those without honor and and he wrote the ballad in the bible dang <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, that'll yeah. preach i think you just gave me my sermon on saturday oh, what we do yes, on saturday yes. so that so i'm good to go i'm good to go well thank you so much yeah, thank uh, you. caitlin for joining us and guys um thank you for being here watching and listening and until then keep your conversations civil and good and deep all right <laughs> have a great day bye all right, see ya.